When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, a podcast all about leaving the EU. We are back with a Monday edition, which is a little bit unusual for us. And as usual, I'm joined by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hiya. Now, uh, let's go straight into the news. And we'll say the news, the Barnier News Briefing, which he gave, was it on Friday? Yes, Friday, yeah. Um, all right. Well, before you tell me what you said, why, why did they do this? What, what, um, what was it for? I think it was just an update from the EU side. It wasn't. It wasn't anything scheduled as part of the negotiations. It wasn't one of the ones where Davis appears alongside Barnier. It was really just for the for the Commission to give an update on how they see progress, mm. um, because they've started to set out some of their their guidelines essentially for the next round of negotiations. Um, and so yeah, it was really just a, a progress update. Whilst progress is really really slow over here. Now I'm fairly familiar with um, the Brexit process now, so I assume you stood up and said everything is going fine, and we. Uh, completely reconciled the British position with what we want. Uh, he said substantial disagreements remain, oh. and he oh. has he has some problems understanding the UK's position. Um, right. He went much further than that. Um, yeah, he suggest David Davis then obviously came out and was quite mean um, about what Barnier had said. Said there was some fundamental contradictions with uh, what Barnier was suggesting. Um, yeah, it, it, this was really Barnier coming out and saying you need to start making some decisions. I think he literally said that. Um, I think it's, yeah. it's the time has come to make decisions. So what um, are Barnier's fundamental con- uh, contradictions? Um, well, there's three, um, and I think they're the same three we've been talking about for ages. I mean, one, one first of all, is that we still haven't got agreement on citizens' rights for the transition period. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, if anything, that's gone backwards. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gone backwards, yeah. December. It's gone backwards, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mentioned last week that... There was a, a letter sent out to businesses from Dexu um, trying to um, alleviate some of the fears amongst the business community about what's going to happen during the transition period. And that letter spelled out, it spelled out exactly that there would be no changes to um, the status of EU workers here. The EU workers who come over during the transition period would you know, face the same immigration rules that people do who come over today. And 
that it turns out that the government isn't promising any of that and he's actually asking for something which is a complete opposite because Theresa May now has, has come out and said openly that she no longer wants uh, people who come over during the transition period to have automatic right of residency after the transition period, That's essentially. It. So right. there, there is an increased burden on business. It is going to be more, much more difficult for them to hire people. Um, whereas the EU Commission is still maintaining its position that uh, immigration rules need to be maintained exactly as they are um, as a full EU member for the duration of the transition period. So that's one area where we're no closer so, together. Sorry, so what were the contradictions that David Davis was referring to? Do you know? Um, the contradictions about... He was mentioning, I think that was going back to the whole uh, sanctions issue. So it was in the news last week that the EU were threatening... Were, well, supposedly threatening us with sanctions if we go against whatever, whatever we end up agreeing on. Yeah. Um, which is ridiculous because all international agreements include things like that to make sure that each side... Um, you know, does what it says it was going to do, mm-hmm. um, and he was suggesting that there's a contradiction contradiction in the fact that they're threatening us with stuff if we do what they say, what, if we don't do what they say. Um, whereas there was kind of nothing doing that the other way. Um, we weren't suggesting anything the other way. Um, so it was that it was really a totally meaningless comment from Davis. It was just him firing back at Barnier. Yeah, exactly. Well, just, just on all these sanctions, I do understand what you're saying <clears> about. You need provisions in any trade agreement in order to make sure both parties hold up their side of the deal. Exactly. Got, got yep. But there are all these sanctions. Are they two way? Would the e, would the UK be able to levy these on the EU, for instance, or or, or is it one way? It's a very good question, which I don't know the answer. Now, the, the reason the EU has sort of stipulated it, because people have said, well, look, the transition period is aiming to be standstill in every single regard. So the, EU, the UK will still be under the jurisdiction of the ECJ, uh, which is the body which monitors all of this stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. The reason the EU wants additional sanctioning procedures is essentially because we're only going to be in this transitionary in this period of hope of what slightly less than two years that there wouldn't be time to bring things through the court in a normal way Uh. Um, that's the issue so Mm. essentially if if there is a form of breach normally that would then go through the ECJ it would go through the normal legal document the question is there may not be time to do any of that that the UK may have left and ended by the time it's done so actually we need the EU has said we need a quicker way of remedying any issues because ordinarily if we decided that we were putting an embargo on you know Belgian chocolate mm. that would that would, exactly that would then just go through the ECJ process in the normal way the challenge is that would probably take longer than the 20 months we'd have got in the transition period so there's no yeah. the EU doesn't ha- actually have any recourse which actually is a, you know, is a wonderful example of why the current trade dispute body might not be the best way to best way to do it. Yeah, exactly. But I think in, in answer to your previous question, does this work two ways? I mean, theoretically, yes. If we are still I a think, full member, then we have recourse to the ECJ in the same way that... I think that theoretically, yes. I think the issue is potentially that we don't have the leverage that they do in this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, As a departing member. But I'm pretty sure that whatever agreement we've got with the United States at the moment, it's pretty one-sided. The United States gets a better deal out of it than... There are, certain, there are certain aspects of uh, of a number of agreements like that. Open skies is the big one, where you know even negotiating, you know even the heft of the EU um, couldn't get a balanced deal between the EU and the US and all that. The US got a much better deal out of open skies than the EU did. So, mm. yeah. Um, so I've got actually what Barnier said exactly. So Excellent. he said. Um, they acknowledge today that a way to resolve disputes and infringements is needed, yet at the same time they dismiss the UK's push for reasonable safeguards to ensure our interests are protected. It's not possible to have it both ways. So I, 
it's a fair point, but it's, uh, it is. I mean, we're chatting sort of before the recording. I said increasingly, it's it's very very hard to see the EU as being unreasonable. I mean, of course, it's pushing its luck in some areas. And yeah, you'd expect that in negotiations, and that's okay. But it's hard to see it as being fundamentally unreasonable. I've, I've seen stuff. even from the EU side, apparently, there's been some people expressing concern at Barnier's language at this news briefing. Yeah. I think the, the fundamental negotiating points underlying what he's saying are, you know, I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, but this back and forth between him and David Davis is a bit... The problem is, I think, the tension in the UK government is so enormous. You know, we've talked before, I mean, fundamentally, the UK government does not have a position on this. This is why we are still stuck in negotiations where we are now. Mm. Um, it means it is, it's highly politically sensitive. And so, as a whilst I, yeah, I, mean, I agree with, the, as you said, you know, Barnier's substantive points, mm. becoming inflammatory doesn't really help the situation along any. Yeah. Other than that, I think they're just really trying to focus minds, saying, look, you know, the, we've got the European Council meeting on the 22nd, I think, uh, of March. The idea is hopefully we, we ratify uh, the, tra- the concept of a transition agreement uh, and put to bed phase one, because don't forget, phase one is not complete yet. No, we, re- we reach sufficient progress, not completion. Um, as Alex said, you know, we've got a bit of a rowback from Theresa May on the on the citizens' rights issues. So that's causing um, causing Brussels some worry. Yeah. Well, um, I, th- I think the, the majorly worrying things that Bonnier said in the in the uh, briefing were, first of all, that you know, obviously we know this. We've discussed it many times. But outside the single market and the customs union, a hard border is unavoidable. Yes. Um, and he also said that the transition period is not a given. I mean, and again, we know that it's there's no it's not legally binding at this point. Nope. Um, it's just based upon the the first phase uh, withdrawal agreement that we've made. But at this point, it goes back to the red lines that the the government set. Um, we agreed in the phase one withdrawal agreement that there would be no hard border. That we would basically do everything that we can to avoid a hard border. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we want to leave both the single market and the customs union. And as yep. as as of yet, no one knows how that could work. Um, we haven't yet pr- put forward a a, pr- a solution. Um, um, and of course, the danger here is, as we see, you know, we, one of the things we have talked about historically is how well prepared the EU has been kind of since referendum day really they've yeah. you know they've, they've stuck together very well and been very well prepared which is you know not a surprise for anyone who's ever worked with the european commission they're a yeah. they're a, they're an administrative I mean, fo- and bureaucratic force in this regard yeah. now the, the challenge is they've they're ready for all of this they've been prepared they've they've had all the things worked out and in many ways the phase one negotiations the you know the sufficient progress was determined far more by the eu laying down frankly what mm-hmm. how this is going to be and us having to having to go to it, just because we haven't set out a strong case for anything else. This is now what's going to happen, I think, with the with the Northern Ireland border. One the, there's a couple of things that came out, of course, at the end of the phase one. Um, we agree that, essentially, no border between Ireland and Northern Ireland is the default option, mm-hmm. um, unless we can come up with anything else. And, frankly, there isn't anything else if we're going to leave um, single market and customs union. And the other thing that came out was the citizens' rights issues, and then the agreement was both sides will go away and start drafting the legal texts to make phase one uh, enforceable under under international law. We haven't done anything yet. And the EU is about to bring forward well, its text. And, and, and of course, again, because we haven't done anything, we will just be presented with a legal text. And we have no kind of reasonable pushback saying, well, actually, we don't like yours. What we think it should look like is this. What we'll have is just David Davies saying, we don't like yours. Well, there's, there's, there's another thing which I've seen this week, which is that... The government is now saying that it wants immigration arrangements to be slightly different during the transition period, mm-hmm. um, and that there will be new systems in place for people to apply for, um, you know, 
residency um, things like that during the transition period but none of that work has even been started no so it, it's 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 very hard to understand at this point how the EU can take our position on that seriously and I think this has been one of the challenges all the way through from the EU is it's sort of like well you're saying things have we just but but th- this idea that we, as, as Alex said, they, the idea that we will be in a position to register EU nationals uh, and keep track of them from the 30th of March next year, even if Parliament commits the funding this evening, mm-hmm. is not possible. We will just not be ready. We will not have the systems in place. So at the same time as Theresa May saying, actually, I want a different system, you, it's very reasonable for both EU and actually the rest of us here in the UK to say, but you can't. You just won't have any of the yeah. any of the IT systems in place. Yeah. So how, how can you even be asking for this? A, the thing you're asking for directly contradicts what us and the EU agreed only about six weeks ago. And secondly, the revisions you're now suggesting aren't practically deliverable. So how are we supposed to take you seriously? It's, it's so, all a bit... Yeah. As a nation, have we just forgotten how to do these things? Or the details which are required to run a nation-state? It does sort of feel... I mean, I think we talked about this before, Alex, that the, the way sort of the Brexit decision and its outcome and everything that's flowed from it has turned a lot of very sensible people into a lot of very bonkers people. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we said before, there's lots of people we followed, you know, as either, either Twitter or as commentators or economists or political analysts who have had huge respect for for decades who have, since the 23rd of June 2016, gone slightly bonkers. They, there's a lack of... You know, some of the things that I immediately admired in these people, often, you know, not coming from the same political spectrum or same economic position, but there was rigorous thought, there was intensive mm. analysis, there was clever thinking. It's just kind of becoming parroting lines. So it's like, well, you know, so it's a bit like the we've decided we're going to change our immigration arrangements. There you are. It's like, but, but you can't just change. You can't just do that. It's. it's the world doesn't work like this yeah. anymore. And we should, we should point out some of the, the problems that this is causing for businesses. Um, so there was a, a thread on Twitter from someone and explaining that if, if you're a, an EU worker who's over here, um, but you don't currently have um, residency secured at this point, and let's say you're made, un- you're made unemployed uh, unexpectedly, mm-hmm. um, at the minute, apparently, the waiting list to get that residency right secured is something like four months. Okay. Um, and so... You know, you, you wouldn't have thought that you would have to apply for that before you lost your job if that was an unexpected thing. And then from the employer's point of view, you, you don't know what the immigration policy is going to be when that person's residency is being decided upon. So how can you, you, know, how can you have confidence in employing that person at this point? It's, it's just... Yeah, you've got a chance that someone might apply for a job and you want to appoint them, and yeah. they have the legal right to work in the UK today... But you don't know whether in 14 months they'll have the legal right. They'll still have the legal right to work in the UK. And you can't. You yeah. can't know that. And you'll you'll face a fine if you do correct. employ someone who then ends up not having the correct rights. It, it, it creates a situation where yeah, that's uh, that's staggering. Actually, how would you how do you how would you actually deal with that as a business? It isn't entirely clear. No, it's not. And frankly, I mean, the only kind of recommendation you've got, apart from a, obviously, if you're listening and this is for you, go and speak to a to an immigration lawyer, an employment lawyer. But basically, I suspect the default reaction will be don't employ nationals. It becomes risky because to it's just very very employ them, yeah. Um, you know, this is not this is not a good position for us to be in at a time when the UK government apparently wants to say we are, you know, a global open nation to the world. Um, there are these kind of fundamental difficulties um, that they're all just wishing away. All right. Well, let's revisit our fundamental difficulties because one of the things that we were speaking about prior to the podcast was 
how Theresa May and the government in general have set out some preconditions for negotiation which simply can't be done because of, because of red lines set up previously. I thought it might be quite a good idea because these, these have been... I won't say forgotten about, but we've not spoken about them for, for a little while. So what are these red lines? Why are they going to cause an issue? Uh, is four? Is there probably four? Something like that. We'll work it out as we go through them. So, <laughs> the first one is no hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Now that, that's the problem because I've spoken about length, the customs union. Yeah, and the single market. We want to we want to be outside both of those. That's it, and and kind of it's the common. And this is the thing, actually. We still we still see. Um, I saw you retweet one of uh, Oliver Norgrove's blogs earlier today. Actually, it was a very good one over the weekend. If you've not seen it, on the the nature of a customs union. Um, but lots of people are saying, you know. Labour's position increasingly over the last week or two has been we've got to stay in the customs union to solve the hard border issue. Mm-hmm. Like, the customs union is necessary but not sufficient mm-hmm. to mm. remove a hard border. It is the, it's the combination of full regulatory alignment and, yeah. uh, and acceptance and the customs union which allows the border to vanish. So, um, we've, got, so we've got the Northern Irish border. Which yeah. has to stay open. Right. Next one. Uh, it's we no. have to leave the jurisdiction of the uh, yeah. of the European Court of Justice. Now, why might this be a problem? Um, That's just the sovereignty thing, right? It's yeah, exactly. We have to take back control of our laws. That was this was the one of the uh, the lines that came back in Theresa May's well, Conservative Party conference speech mm-hmm. um, back in October in uh, in 2016, reinforced at Lancaster House um, in January last year, 12 months ago now, um, and that'll rub up against a couple of things we'll come on to next, which is we must take control of our own trade policy yep. uh, which means exiting the European Union's common commercial policy which essentially means, not wholly but kind of practically means leaving the customs union mm. uh, and we have to take back control of our borders from an immigration point of view which means leaving the single market right. um, which is all great but those that you can't leave the customs union and the single market and common commercial policy and keep an open border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland um, and nor can you have frictionless trade between the EU 27 and the UK. Yeah. So there's always been, and we talked about this, I think, probably since podcast number one, this is an irreconcilable tension um, that the UK government and, you know, David Davis, particularly Liam Fox, have just sort of tried to wish away. They've said, you know, the North Island border, we can't talk... They said they couldn't talk about North Island border in phase one because, frankly, it would only be resolved by the nature of the trade agreement that the two mm. sides sign later except there is no precedent for any trade agreement which removes the border. Absolutely no precedent. A free trade agreement on its own cannot do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, that's, these have always been known knowns, if we go back to Donald Rumsfeld and the, uh, <laughs> the Iraq War. <laughs> so, despite these red lines, so that, w- that is what you would assume the UK position is. However, we are expecting the UK position to shift over the next three weeks. Well, apparently we're going to have a position... Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the next week, which will be a starting point. So the, the red lines, if you like, are the foundations for a position which we've not yet quite established. Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so give me an example then of, and I think this is quite a, quite a good one. One of these, uh, what one of these speeches will be entailing, and why, why don't you link it to one of the red lines, in particular the ECJ one? Um, so uh, this is something I've been reading today. That apparently, apparently, over the next three weeks, Theresa May has said that the cabinet will figure out and set out, I think it's being termed the road to Brexit, is the uh, the snap line that the government's come up with. Um, so this is happening over the next three weeks. Uh, there's going to be 
five speeches over the next three weeks, starting with Theresa May this Saturday in Munich, I believe. Oh, is she going to go to various foreign places to... Well, they're not all May. May's only doing one of them. Oh, May's doing two. Oh, May's doing two. Six speeches, May's doing two Ah, of them. Do we know the locations? No, I think think only the first one is is solved in terms of date and location at this point. So May's doing two. Um... David Davis is doing one. Um, David Liddington, I believe, is meant to be doing one on mm-hmm. security. Um, Ex- ex-Europe minister. Actually, right. actually, very well regarded in his, t- in his time as a Europe minister. Um, he's the odd one out, of course. The other one is Liam Fox. Liam Fox course, is doing he, one on international trade. Yeah. Um, David Liddington's kind of the odd one out because he's the pro-EU one. Mm. Of them all, you'll notice, of course, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is missing from that list. Oh, is Boris Johnson? The Boris Johnson. Oh yes, Boris Johnson. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, is there, is there a chance that the cabinet have actually? Come to a joint position. It feels unlikely. <laughs> yeah, it goes against everything that I've heard so far. Mm, no, I, I, no, I, I think that's basically impossible to be honest with you. Yeah, and, <laughs> no, and whether these six speeches the next three weeks actually set out a concrete position, so, and the other thing is whether they set out the concretes in terms of what's achievable. Because my fear, and I suspect most of many businesses' fears, is actually instead of just you know. If the Cabinet has decided what it wants, then Theresa May get on the 6 o'clock news tonight and just say so. Mm. Don't drag it out mm. over six speeches over the next two weeks. If you've got a decision, crack on with it. Yeah. Um, um, because, frankly, we've been kicking our heels for nearly two years now. I, I think um, Boris Johnson is due to do a speech, I think, on Wednesday. Okay. Um, but that's about... It's going to be something about... Um, you know, you know the speech that him and Gove did after the referendum result, where yes. it was essentially for all you people who voted Remain, this isn't the end of you know we're not leaving Europe, we're leaving the EU, we'll still be close friends. It seems like it's going to be another one of those. Um, so don't worry about everything. Yeah. Um, so, so Boris is doing one, um, but the, the point which you uh, you know asked about was uh, apparently May is going to say that we are going to remain part of Europol and we're going to take part in the European arrest, arrest warrant. Um, which rubs up against the ECJ red line. It does, yeah, because it's the European Court of Justice that oversees the uh, arrest warrant scheme. Uh, so whether that's one of the lines starting to, the red lines becoming pink or yeah. being uh, or being rubbed out, who knows? But yeah. I, I think the other thing on the speeches, when I say really, is that, you know the, my the, my fear, as I think business fear is that it just reiterates some of the problems we've had. So that they will go at great lengths to say. We're leaving the EU, we're not leaving Europe, we want to be great friends, we want to strike a deep and special relationship with an important free trade agreement, and we will take back control of our money, borders and laws, uh, and everything will be great. Yeah. Because actually, if that's all they say, we have progressed absolutely nowhere. Uh, it is, you know, it has got to be. What is the legal text by which that which you now want to take to the EU in advance of their meeting in five weeks, and say this is what we want to work towards? Uh, yeah. And deep and special does not cut it. Um, yeah, well, deep and special also sounds like the exact opposite to the way that they are formulating these policies. I mean, you know, just let's say that this is what they are going to say. They want to take up Europe on yeah, the European arrest warrant. It's it is almost beyond belief that they would not have checked that through with an advisor or a researcher or something and come up to come to the conclusion that this goes against the so-called red line. I mean, I agree. They just scrap the red line and say, look, we've got it wrong. The red line, they're going to have to scrap the red lines, basically, yeah. is my opinion. Mm. There's no other way of, of doing it. Um, no, at least one of them has to fall. And which um, one would you like to fall, if, if you had your choice? Which, which, which one is the one which is least appealing? Um... I, I don't mind at all if there's ECJ oversight. 
No, it's, it seems the easiest one to not worry about, to be honest. See, um, what do you think? Politically, that is the one that people are going to get most annoyed about. You might well be right, but thinking, it's more about thinking really in terms of practical outcomes. You know, we've been trying to, you know, we've been driven all the way through this last two, three-year process. It feels like a decade now. Yeah. Um, about what is it business looking for, and they're just looking for they just want outcomes. I think there was um, there's an article in the uh, in the FT I think today, which which talks about ministers becoming you know these speeches coming through, and one senior Conservative minister being quoted as saying, "Just make an effing decision. We barely at this stage even care what it is." Yeah, and I suspect a huge huge share of the business community would agree exactly with that just we can't we are staring into an abyss and just any form of con- of what that abyss looks like will be helpful yeah but I, th- um, I think the problem being is I mean the more you, you kind of look back at the whole Brexit process and the votes it wasn't necessarily a rational decision it was very much an emotional decision and I think what what resonates most with voters which is ultimately what this is going to come down to what do the voters think would be the ECJ. I think that's the one which has to, which has to go as a point of principle. Mm-hmm. But you know, I understand why businesses don't really care. Yeah, that's it. We just want a just want a, you know a trading environment which works uh, fundamentally. Yeah. Um, right. So we've got six speeches over three weeks to look forward to. I for one can't wait. It'll be very very exciting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I just hope that they do um, go with all the. Um, all the various continental cities. It gives it a certain sense of occasion. A, a certain flavour. Yeah. The question, of course, is just can the four ministers speaking actually all agree with each other? Yeah. And, and, I, and I suspect can Theresa May agree with herself between the second speech and the first speech? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and have they just been instructed just uh, to independently write six speeches and hope that, and hope that they all match up? Um, right. So here is something which I found quite interesting. Um, why is the economy not a good measure of if the Brexit process is working or if Brexit matters? I wouldn't say it's not necessarily a good, uh, a good, uh, a good indicator. So it is a good indicator. Well, I think it can be a good indicator. <laughs> and the way you read forecasts kind of depends on this. This, of course, is the news this week that the Bank of England has upgraded its growth forecasts for 2018 and beyond. Um, as I said, from all of us... Oh, so Brexit's working. Brexit is clearly working, though it's not yet happened. Um, no, I think for all of us, the you know, for all of us economists, the, the growth generally at the back end of 2017 surprised us all. No one expected it would be quite as strong as it is. Driven really by two things. Depreciation is sterling, still helping manufacturing and production industries particularly mm-hmm. they've done really well uh, and secondly global growth I mean actually probably the biggest driver of UK growth in the last three to six months has been the rapid growth in the in European economy uh, in the American economy in Southeast Asia uh, so they've they've really supported the UK yeah and it's a tricky one because for instance European growth well they've got you know, they've got a lot of group to catch up on. They have indeed, yeah, absolutely. You know, they were. You know, we, we all, of course, we, the UK and the and the EU and the rest of the wider world, went through the recession in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. Um, we had a bit of a wobble, though. We didn't tip back into recession in eleven, twelve. Europe then got slammed by the eurozone crisis uh, and bailing out Cyprus and Greece uh, and all of those issues. So Europe took a while to recover, and it's only in the last sort of twelve, eighteen months it's got going. And mm-hmm. the last six months, particularly, actually, it's doing very well indeed. Long way to go. You know, unemployment in Greece is still 20%. Youth unemployment is still 43%. Um, yeah, there's a hell of a long way to go. But it's recovering well, and that's really supported the, the UK producers. Um, so, yeah, UK growth has been better than we better than we expected. Because of that, that means actually you have to upgrade next year's forecasts because we've you know essentially the amount of money the UK economy made is much higher than we thought it would be. So next year's forecasts get revised uh, 
accordingly. So I think I think you know we've all been surprised by how well business has ridden this on the whole. Um, but that doesn't mean we're all kind of you know happy with not seeing any risks in the future. Consumer spending is is still slowing. We've been seeing that slowing since the back end last year. New figures out from Visa this morning. Um, you might think Visa is just one of the cards in your wallet, but it accounts for one in three pounds spent in the UK. So there are, it's an incredibly good barometer. They've seen year-on-year consumer spending falling uh, for nine consecutive months now. Um, so there are, there are definitely some concerns about the health of the uh, of the consumer side. Um, we'll need to wait on and see how that comes. Now, is it just a sign that economies do what economies do regardless of exter- ex- externalities to a degree? Yes, I, th- I think mostly so, and I think that's fair. Actually, what we what we call exogenous factors, those things outside, um, do have an influence, but they're not necessarily so large. So actually, you know, we're we're a big trading nation. We're one of the biggest trading nations in the country, but our international trade aspect of our economy is only about twenty five percent of GDP. Seventy five percent of what we do is internally generated, uh, as it were, just keeping the UK economy itself spinning over. UK companies supplying to other UK companies who are buy- who are selling things to UK consumers. That's yeah, that's most of what we do um, so yeah it's you know it's always we say in economics everything happens at the margin it's it's uh, it's those little bits that knock things the, the annoying thing that happened following the uh, the inflation forecasts and the upgrading of growth forecasts uh, for the next few years was that people immediately led to the conclusion that this means that any of the Brexit forecasts that the Bank of England have done are somehow invalidated or that how can you trust any economic forecast um, that is a good point it's well. It's not. It's not an unreasonable point, but I think it's about how you balance all this stuff. So what we have, you see, is the Bank of England. Of course, I mean, actually, people have said the Bank of England has been too pessimistic. The Bank of England has actually been one of the most optimistic forecasters over the past two years. They've been on the top edge of everything. But essentially, you've got you know the. It's the same people. It's it's Jacob Rees-Mogg. It's John Redwood. It's that sort of side. Three months ago, slating the Bank of England, saying your forecasts are useless. Nothing you produce is any good. You're selling the British people short. They grade their forecast and apparently now the Bank of England forecasting machine is perfect because it's telling them what they want to hear Mm -hmm. and I think this is the challenge in in trying to cut through all this and be balanced Mm -hmm. we know ask any economic forecaster face to face the one thing we're certain of is our forecast will be wrong yeah yeah that it's it's the best we know with the information we have today and the judgments we're taking so I mean, what they've basically done is they've retrospectively looked at what they've, what they've said and made, and made the difference, yeah. and this is why. The, pro- the problem is, though, is that there are, there are two different kinds of forecasts, and people are using changes to one you know, to kind of invalidate the results of the other. So what, so, what are the two different types? So, so uh, we're talking about the announcement of last Thursday, right, Super Thursday, which is mm-hmm. about, based on trends and how the economy is currently performing, what is growth likely to be you know, in a few years' time from now. Whereas, on the other hand, you've got something like the Brexit forecasts, which say, compared to if we didn't Brexit, if we do Brexit, the impact on the economy will be of this magnitude, mm-hmm. essentially. And the two are different things. Exactly. Um, and I'm going to use an analogy, which I think has been going around Twitter. A guy called Tony Yates, I think, um, mm. one of his blogs was, came up with this analogy. Um, he's an economist, um, good guy to follow. Um, was that you could not... Uh, you, you couldn't accurately predict, for example, what my weight is going to be in 10 years' time because there are so many factors that could change it. You, there are so many factors that could affect that, right? Yeah. But what you could do is do a study that said, all else being equal, if I give up drinking, it will have an effect on my weight of this order of magnitude in 10 years' time, right? Oh, okay. 
and those two things are different and you and those are essentially on the one hand we've got the the, the growth forecasts that were released on last thursday and on the other hand we've got the brexit forecasts which say compared to if we don't brexit if we take the norway option gdp will be hit by two percent um the two things don't really interact and you can't use the results of one to invalidate the results of the other because if you were to repeat the study about my weight in 10 years time in two years' time, there would be new information and, and new facts That's to put into really good to, to put into the equation that might imp- impact upon that. But it doesn't affect at all the conclusions that you draw from the if all else giving up alcohol. Yeah, yeah. If everything else stays the same, I give up alcohol. That the, the results of that forecast still uh, are still uh, exactly the same. That is excellently put. It, it's a very very good analogy actually that's been that's been bouncing around. It gets to a bit of econometric theory that yeah. that, that most people sort of never never are exposed to really. Um, the other bit is quite of course on the if I say the normal types of forecasting so not the what will your weight it's, be and, it's and conditional forecasting I think is, that's it yeah. so if I, on normal sort of macroeconomic forecasting what we also do as well is we look historically at what the trends are we look at what the information we have today and we'll also throw in a number of key assumptions okay. so you'd literally the forecasters will just sit on a table and say okay we can we can model out on the basis of trend but also what do we think is going on now one of the key assumptions in the Bank of England forecast is there will be a smooth and non majorly impactful Brexit that's a key there's a key influence into the forecast so the Bank of England forecast has not attempted to model a free trade agreement a not in the customs union agreement a migration controls get locked down none of those things are in that forecast and so, it's, so every time you see a forecast one of the things you always do is say well actually what are your fundamental assumptions because you've got to make some you can't just say you know, it's, it's, yeah, there's a billion possible variables and more over the next month that will affect you know where we think the economy will be in a year or two years time some of them you just got to make a call for uh, and go so we'll make assumptions about where that two year forecast we'll make assumptions about where we think bank interest rate will be in two years about its path over those two years about where we think um, government borrowing will be about where we think you know, it'll also, it's also all done on government policy stated as of today so even if we have a you know an inkling that government might be doing a major infrastructure spend that it hasn't yet announced in a year's time, if it's not stated government policy, it isn't used in the forecasting. Really? So it's it, it, it's a, the problem is forecasting is I think I've, I've talked about this at lectures before is I think the public look at a forecast, the general public sort of th- see an economic forecast and think it's somehow like this nailed certainty that this is where we go. It's just our best educated, thought about, carefully worked out, stab in the dark of what we think we know today. That's all it is. In the same way, I guess, when businesses are drawing up your budgets for next year, you've got no certainty about what your income... You've got quite a bit of certainty of your expenditure, yeah. certainly, but your income is massively variable, but you've got to put a number on it. Yeah. As you go into your budget-setting board meetings, probably any time around now, you will, have, you will have chosen the total income number, you will have chosen how you profile it, you will have chosen how it sits across all your departments, and you'll have allocated some expenditure. That's your best guess. That's no. all it is. <laughs> it's no. educated, but it's only a guess. I've got a very dry question, tangentially linked to all of that, and so much I simply don't understand. What, what is the Purchasing Managers Index? How does it work? 
Who are these people? Who are these people? So Purchase Minds Index, uh, the, some of you listening may have heard of the PMI indices. Um, they're run, they're global. Uh, they're run, depending on which country in the world uh, you're in, they're run either in conjunction with the Chartered Institute of Purchasing Supply or with Market Economics, which is it's Market Economics in the UK, uh, that look after them. It is a survey of several hundred purchasing managers weighted for right. companies. So, first of all, what is a purchasing manager? Somebody in an organisation who buys stuff. Right. Okay. Basically, so someone in charge of internal procurement, okay. uh, usually. So that might be that's will certainly be goods and services for your own company to operate, but also those things which will get passed on into your clients uh, in some way or another. They survey uh, several hundred every month uh, on how are your orders, how are your recruitment, how are your employment, general overview of the uh, of the economy. The number of companies they survey is weighted very carefully, so it matches what the, the sectors look like across the UK. So there'll be about 80% of yeah. the sample will be services, about 10% will be manufacturing, about 8% will be construction. Um, and they're asked essentially whether these things are going up, going down, staying broadly similar. And across a very large suite of indicators and a large sample size, you can make very good inferences about the health of the UK economy. And, uh, so, and the PMI numbers actually correlate very, very well to, to eventual that, outturn. That's one of the indicators that is currently rolled out. And I scratch my head every time that it comes out. I don't know what it means. I have no idea. Yeah. So, it's, what, so what does it actually mean for the economy if it's, if for instance, the index is is high? If it's high, then it looks like the economy is growing. Um, yeah. It'll be you can dive into it. So they publish just one headline number for each section. If you're interested in these things, people go and have a look at Market Economics website. Uh, they're published on the first, second, and third working days uh, of the month, covering manufacturing, construction, and services. I think in that order. Occasionally they do composite PMIs. They'll do regional PMIs. Essentially, if the number is 50, that sector is stable, not growing or shrinking. Less than 50, it's shrinking. Uh, above 50, it's growing. Oh, uh, it's good. a nice and simple way of just condensing. It's like what we do with our own quarterly economic survey here. You take a lot of data in, you put it through a nice model, crunch it into one single number, uh, and feed that back out to the public. Excellent. Well, I have got one more heavyweight topic to get into, but I'm not. I'm not going to bother because I want to talk about Twitter. Okay. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> the MP uh, for Yeovil, someone fish, Marcus Fish. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk about because I, I think we should be like a, re- a regular section on this podcast now. Um, things that MPs do on Twitter. What has <laughs> Mr. Fish done on Twitter? Uh, well, okay, th- yeah, this is me talking about Twitter world again. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll be brief. Um, an article came out over the weekend in the Telegraph um, looking at the US Canada border as an example of how the Northern Ireland Irish border might work in the future. Um, and I don't know if it was part of the article, article if it was just related to it, but the MP for Yeovil, Marcus Fish, has been over to visit the US Canada border and then tweeted something out about the fact that only 3% of trucks which cross that border have to be stopped for inspection. Um, suggesting that this might be an okay system for the border in Ireland. Uh, and then loads and loads of people on Twitter came out and said that that's not right at all and that every truck that goes through the border has to go through through a first inspection post where it has to, they have to supply documentation, blah, 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 blah. And then it's only 3% of those trucks that then have to go through to be X-rayed, uh, checked for stowaways and have you know more stringent checks done on them. So I, I, mean, I assume that he took this criticism in good grace and um, took t- 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 a backward step from his original position. No, well, I mean, the, 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 the 
first um, comeback came from Ali Renson, who works for the Institute of, Institute of Directors, and he's great. You should follow her. Um, really good on Brexit stuff. She actually advises people on how to get grids across the US-Canada border. <laughs> and she told him that he was wrong, and he replied, yada, yada. Um, and then, second of all, Sam Lowe, who we've spoken about loads of times before, he works for the Centre for European Reform research or reform mm. one of those and then he's also part of the UK trade forum really really knowledgeable guy um, he again implied that if you're looking at that border um, for solutions in Ireland then you should be looking elsewhere and once again Marcus Fish replied yada yada yeah um, all gravity models all the rest of it you know all these technical people who've stood in their whole lives these things uh, are just stupid and I think this kind of comes back to something I think we talked about before the podcast actually before we started recording is this sort of bizarre bit where some people have just gone Slightly lunatic is that generally I you've got. I, this is the thing which I do hundred percent. I would go over somewhere and I would get the wrong end of the stick. Someone said, "Oh yeah, well three of our three three percent of our tru- trucks, three percent of our trucks get uh, you know mandatory inspections, which is completely different to some other form of terminology." I'd tweet it out and then I'd get absolutely hammered. That's it. But the point so, is, that, but the thing yeah. is, it's okay to be wrong in areas of complexity. Yeah, but you, That's you, not you, a you would say you would say fair enough. Like, oh, hang on, no, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> I think I, I would then escalate to the odd Anyway, that's that's Twitter world. Yeah, and yeah. It's, sadly, it's just a thing we see all too often <laughs> in, our, in our politicians. I mean, particularly the politicians who would generally try, you know, we're, we need them to steer this through the process, is they're just not listening to advice they've mm. been given. There's this concept that, oh, you it's know... It's not believing in the politics. Exactly, it's that thing. Because it came on to the, the, the topic and eventually went into gravity models, didn't it? And it's yeah. like, you know, oh, but, you know, gravity models are a nightmare, wow. you just pretend, and it's like, well, actually... You know, economists across the world disagree on lots and lots of stuff, but there are probably half a dozen topics which are absolutely concretely understood. There's yeah. simply no grey area for, for thinking. You know, there's some sort of, you know, who pays, where the instance of corporation tax is one of them. Yeah, yeah. One of the others is gravity drive models. Yeah, it was, we go back to Tony Yates because he was involved in that tweet thread and he said if, you, if Marcus Fisher's got serious evidence that gravity models aren't a thing, then he should be going for the Nobel Prize. Yeah, because, and because he would win it if he has evidence. Yeah, because that it's concretely understood um, you know new and new research comes through every year and it all confirms the same stuff so Marcus if you're listening and you can disprove trade gravity theory um, then uh, the Nobels uh, in Sweden will be delighted to hear from you yeah yeah the audio whatever um, right is there anything going on in the Chamber of Commerce this week that everyone needs to know about um, is this month? Yeah, well, I think well, this month the most important thing is I'm going on holiday on Wednesday. Oh, um, that's, the, that's very nice. I'm off to Spain. Um, so uh, I'll check out life over there and report back. Uh, I'm going to Cardiff, big port. So we'll see what, see what the excitement of Brexit is down there. Um, mm. There's going to be lots of stuff happening in the next couple of months, but maybe stuff I won't mention just yet. Uh, stuff that's in the planning. Cryptic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, potential for members to get involved too if they're, if they're interested. Um, so yeah, a couple of months we'll have something out there. Excellent. Right, so tell us where, where we can find you on Twitter. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. And as always, I'm at Jay Beardmore. And we'll see you next week, probably. I would have thought, thought so. Yes, yeah, I'm back on Tuesday. Yep. Fantastic. All right, until then, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.